they leave Egypt and before they can actually eventually go into the promised land. And we're learning what really what not to do when our spiritual season is pretty dry. And, uh, and I guess uh, I think maybe a lot of us can probably identify with that in different areas of our life. And it feels like maybe we're far from God or maybe that we've made some decisions that's kept us far from God. Or uh, maybe it just seems like it's been a long time since we've seen a movement of God in our life. And, and so how do we navigate those? How do we begin to do that? And what we realize, and I hope what we've been able to put together for you uh, the last few weeks, is that the more that we look at the Israelites, the more we identify with them. And we go, yeah, we... We do kind of the same things that they do. We kind of run back to our old life, or we try to negotiate with God, or we really are more concerned about our own comfort or our own physical appeasement than we are about what God wants and what He has already provided for us. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to um, look at a passage of Scripture, and we're going to skip a section. And the reason why we're doing that is because a few months ago, I preached, and I know you guys remember everything that I preach every week. You probably have journals of it that you reread at night and go, man, that was really good when Matt said that. But a few months ago, I preached a series that I called Defined. Remember that? And we talked about our experiences and our beliefs and um, our emotions and how our relationships and how they define who we are. Well, in that preaching series, I preached through the next major event that we come to in our story of the Israelites. And that is when they actually go to the promised land. Remember, they send in the the 12 spies and Joshua and Caleb come back and they're saying, yeah, we can do it. And the other 10 guys says, no, we can't. Um, You know, the descendants of Anak are there. And that's the, uh, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter, I think four and talk about the Nephilim. We talked about all that uh, a few months ago. And so we're not going to rehash all that. I'm not going to re-preach what I preached a couple of months ago. So we're going to, we're all going to understand that that's a part of the story. And there are obvious life lessons that we can learn from that, but I don't want to have to re-preach the same thing again uh, to pull those same lessons out. So we, we understand that the Israelites have left Sinai and our story, that they have uh, wandered through, they've, they've eaten their quail. Remember last, uh, last week, the 105 million quail that God blew in from the sea? And then, uh, and then the next thing they know, they are there. They're at the place that God is ready to give them. And this is not a very... You know, they, they spent almost a year at Sinai, but the rest of the travel didn't take them very long to get to what we now know as the future uh, kingdom of Israel and, and all that. And so they, they got there pretty quick. And then when they sent the spies in, they obviously had some disobedience through that. And God, uh, God's punishment to their disobedience was that they would wander the desert for 40 years until everybody over the age of 20 dies away. And you got to imagine, I, I just always, because I, I think like this, I imagine being the last guy that's, that they're just waiting to die, right? And he's the guy who's just like, he's like 112 years old, feels like, and you're just like, you just hurry up and die so we can go back. And, and so there's that guy that they finally, you know, he finally dies, I'm assuming a natural death. And then they, they, they eventually are able to go back. But where we're at now is in this wondering part. They've, they've, they've had their opportunity to go in. And then, uh, and then now we pick up the next major event of the, of the story, and it's in Numbers chapter 16. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be there, and we're going to read a big chunk of Numbers 16. And I don't have it all on the screen because, again, I want you to be in your Word. I want you to underline and highlight and do all those kind of things in your Bibles. And so the first few verses that I've got are going to be on the screen, but the rest of it we're going to read out of your own copy. So if you've got a, uh, if you've got a Bible or if you've got a, the app on your phone or on your iPad or whatever you need to use, just go ahead and grab that. 
So this, this event is, is called Korah's Rebellion. If you've done any kind of study uh, about what happens in this, you're going to kind of be a little familiar with this, but it's a really neat story that I believe really focuses on our, um, our own selfish ambition. Now, here's what I'm going to say before we get into this. If you don't listen to what I'm saying this morning, you're going to hear a different message than what I'm preaching. Can I just, can we just put that out there? Here's what you're going to hear. If you don't listen, you're going to hear, you're not allowed to say anything negative about your, your pastor or the staff or your Sunday school teachers. And if you do, you will die. And that's not what I'm saying. Okay? If you want to take that with you, then you, you unpack that at home yourself. But that's not the message I was, I was preaching. What I'm preaching this morning is a message about our oftentimes inflated egos and about how I believe this is, this is going to be kind of tough this morning. It's going, to, it's going to hurt a little bit this morning because I think it's going to hit all of us in a pretty soft spot. Numbers chapter 16 Let's just start off with verse 1 and 2. This gives, gives us the characters that we're going to talk about today. kind of sets the stage. Korah, son of Ishar, son of Koath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, came, they became insolent, remember that word, and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. So that's a lot of different names. Let's break it down for you, okay? Uh, so if you know your Old Testament history, you know that uh, there was Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons are now the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Everybody remembers that God uh, changed Jacob's name to Israel. That's why we call them the Israelites, okay? And so Israel had 12 sons. Uh, and one of his sons uh, was named Levi. Now, here's what's great about the, the way this, they did all this. When they were going to get to the land eventually, God had already laid out the fact that they were going to get land allotments for each tribe. And so all the uh, Reubenites would have a place, all the people who were part of Dan would have a place, all the people who were part of uh, Benjamin would split up. But if, if all these different places had different land allotments, they were going to get except for the Levites. The descendants of Levi, they were like the, they were like the church guys, okay? And so they helped uh, handle all the church things, and so they didn't get a quote-unquote land allotment, but everybody else helped take care of the Levites. Now, Korah, our main guy here, is the great-grandson of Levi. He's three generations removed from the, the tribal guy leader, the, the tribe leader, the, the man. He's, he's four descendants away from Israel. And so this is like, this is very quick generations that's happened here. Now, what you need to know is that Moses is a Levite. Moses' brother Aaron, remember Aaron? Who he, he was, remember Moses said, you know, I'm, I'm slow to speech, but Aaron is going to be my mouthpiece. Aaron is a Levite as well. He's his brother. And so what we see happen in, in Exodus is that, that God says anybody who is Aaron and his descendants are going to be priests. And the Levites are the church people, but Aaron and his descendants are the priests. Now, so here's what you have to know. You have to be, you have to be a Levite to be a priest. 
but you can be a Levite and not be a priest. Does that make sense? So not everybody who's a Levite is a priest, just Aaron's descendants. And so we have Korah here. Korah is a Levite. Korah and it says Dathan and Abiram and Eliab, these are not even Levites. They're Reubenites. They're a different tribe. They're just in there just stirring up trouble. And then we got 250 other well-known community leaders who've been part of the council. That means they're Levites too. And they come insolent to Moses and Aaron. Look what they do, verse 3. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, quote, You have gone too far. The whole Israelite community is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Do you hear that insolent tone with that? You've gone too far, right? We're all holy. God is with all of us, not just you. What makes you so special? Even worse, why do you think you're so special? Now the problem with this is, is that if you know the story of Moses and you know kind of the things that transpired in Moses' life, you know Moses didn't ask for this. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 4, Moses tries to talk God out of using him and using someone else. Remember the whole burning bush incident? This is Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And then God speaks to him in verse 10. Moses says to the Lord, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow in speech and tongue. And then finally in 4.13, Moses said, Lord, will you please send someone else to do it? He didn't want the leadership role that he was in. And then in Exodus chapter 28, this is where Exodus 28.1, you can write that in the margin or in your, in your bulletin. This is where God's speaking. He says, have Aaron, your brother, he's talking to Moses, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithmar, so they may serve me as priests. Do you hear that? God set up Aaron and his descendants as priests. And God called Moses to do what Moses was supposed to do. And he sets all this in motion. And they didn't, none of them volunteered really. None of them was like, oh, I'm going to be it because I'm God's favorite. None of them did any of that. But here, now we have all these Israelites, these 250 guys leading with Korah in the charge. And they're saying, what makes you so special? Everybody else is just as good as you. Now, here's the deal. This is not an issue with leadership. See how if you weren't paying attention, you'd think that they had an issue with leadership? Their issue is that we have a group of people who love God and whom God loves, but they want to be in charge. They want to be in charge because their focus is inward and not upward. They're so entitled and they're so concerned about their voice being heard that they literally ignore the voice of God in church I believe we do the same thing. When when we're in our spiritually dry seasons of our life, we get so inwardly focused and so myopic in our thinking and so self-absorbed in our wants and our desires that we begin to convince ourselves that somehow God's main desire for our life is for us to be happy. That God somehow... And his plan requires little sacrifice so that he can give major 
reward, that God will grade us on a curve, that, that compared to everyone else, he's, we're not as bad, and he'll, he'll, he'll judge us according to everyone else. That church is more about keeping membership than about reaching the lost. We convince ourselves that service is optional if we're really, really busy. And that it's not a big deal if we're not involved in church because Jesus knows my heart. And we begin to be so inward focused and we turn all the attention that's supposed to be on Him and we pull it right back in on us. And, and church, nowhere in the Bible is those, are those things true. We've got Korah and 250 other people that are basically saying we can do whatever we want because we're, our term, Christians, and we're forgiven. Can I just say, God doesn't care if you're happy. God cares if you're obedient. God doesn't say, uh, come after me and everything will be easy. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in the New Testament, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself daily. Take up your cross, which means full obedience will lead to your eventual death. And follow me. When the final judgment comes, it's going to be you and God. Not you and compared to everybody else. Not good old boy points, a system like that. It's you and God and no one else. And the church is founded and established under the headship of Jesus Christ with one mission. And that's the great commission to take the gospel somewhere. Not to appease the membership of the church. Read your Bible. That's what it's about. And when we begin to say, no, it's more about us and less about them. It's more about us and not about Him. Then we become just like the Israelites. Obedience is not optional. Optional obedience is disobedience to God. And let me tell you, you this: you need the church because God does know your heart. Amen? Oh, I don't want to hear that, man. I don't like that. Can you just preach something real nice and let me go home and feel good about myself? We got to move past this self-entitled, self-absorbed, me-focused Christianity and get to the point of what it's really all about. You know what it's about? Three simple things, but we're too afraid to say these because we're afraid that we're going to be labeled something, and we're afraid that we're going to we're going to offend someone. And we don't do these because we're afraid to take a stand for what we know is true. Here's the three things that are true: Number one, for all sin and falling short of the glory of God, we are all sinners. Number two, the payment of sin, the penalty of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And number three, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are the three most important verses out of the Bible, in my opinion. We've all sinned. The penalty for that sin is death. And the only way out of that is confession and belief in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was. And when you do that, you are saved. And yet we cannot do that. Because we're too focused on what makes us happy and we're too focused about what makes us comfortable and we're too focused about what we want Versus about reaching the lost with the gospel. These men in Korah's rebellion are exactly focused on what sometimes our hearts are focused on as well. And it's what works best for me. And if you read your Bible, which I hope that you do, nowhere in the Bible is it about you and your wants. It's about your benefit. It's about obedience. It's about God. You are not the main character 
of Scripture. And when we begin to make our wants most important, when we begin to make our focus the focus of the church, when we miss what the gospel is really all about. And so they come to Moses and they say, you've gone too far. Moses is pretty frustrated and he basically says back in the next couple of verses, says, you guys have gone too far. You think I, yeah, you've gone too far, right? And he kind of points the finger right back at him. And in verse 12 through 15, Moses even appeals to the Reubenites. Remember the guys um, that were there with them, that Dathan and Abiram. And he, and he says, listen, guys, let's sit down and talk about this. This doesn't make any sense. Why are you guys trying to rise up? Why are you being so insolent? Why are you being so rebellious right now? And these guys, they just, they completely blow Moses off. And they, they, say, they say things like, you were supposed to lead us to the land flowing with milk and honey, and you haven't done your job. Now, never mind three chapters before this, they have the opportunity to go into the promised land and they chicken out, okay? They're just ignoring that. We're not going to pretend like that happened. You were supposed to lead us to the land that God promised us, and you haven't done it yet. And they even say in the in passage of Scripture, I think it's verse 15, no, we will not meet with you, Moses. Well, at this point, Moses is just done. Like he's just, he's God, he's done and God is done. God's just like, okay, we're about to wipe them out. And he keeps reading. He says, here's the plan. I want everybody to get your censers. Now, here's what a censer is, okay? Think of a, think of a kind of a fancy pot that you could put coals in the bottom of and you'd put an incense in the top of it. And the coals would heat and burn the incense. And it was normally attached to a chain and they would kind of wave it around. Well, that incense is an offering to God. Something that the priests were supposed to do. And so God says, everybody get your, get your censers and meet outside the tent of meeting, essentially outside of the tabernacle. And so Moses and these 250 other guys and Aaron, they all meet outside the tent of meeting. And this, these, this passage, these passages are not on the screen, so grab your Bible. Verse 23, number 16, verse 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, of Dathan, and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sin. That word wicked men means guilty, ungodly, and hostile. When we begin to emulate that behavior, then we are guilty, ungodly, and hostile. Keep reading verse 27. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out of, and were standing at the, with their wives, their children, and little ones at the entrance to their tents. Then Moses said, this, will, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, and that it was not my idea. If this, these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But... If the Lord brings about something totally new, I love that. You should underline that or circle that in your scripture. If the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them, 
with everything that belongs to them, then they will go down alive into the realm of the dead. Then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. So this is Moses basically saying, listen, you guys, you, you want all the attention? You're going to get all the attention. If what happens next can be explained, then I'll concede and say that I was wrong and that these guys were right. Verse 31. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all associated with Korah together with all their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Did you catch that? Like Moses said, if you can explain what's about to happen next, then I'll concede. And as soon as he stopped talking, and just opened up and swallowed them. And everybody around them had to go, what is going on? But you notice what was swallowed up? Them, their household, all associated with Korah, and their possessions. Everything that made them them. Nothing unique to Korah survived. Nothing that he could boast about, brag about, bargain with God over. Nothing of them survived. Church, that's what happens when we place ourselves over Him. He takes away everything standing in the way. Everything. You don't think that God would use your health to get your attention? God would use your children's health to get your attention. You don't think that He would endanger your retirement or, or put strain on your job or ruin your popularity or your influence? He can use anything, do anything, remove everything standing in the way of His will. Korah is gone. All his stuff is gone. All his family are gone. And then look, verse 34, this is great. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too, right? Wouldn't that be what you saw, thought as well? And then, listen, then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Did God just handle a part of the disobedience or did He handle all of it? Incredibly, all of it. He swallowed up Korah and then He burned alive the rest of the men. Now here's what I think most of you are probably saying. I get it. These guys did some stupid stuff. They kind of rose up against Moses, and we're not going to do. We're not going to be as selfish as them. They crossed a line, but then look what what God does next. This is really great, and, and this is subtle, but you have to read it and you have to see it. Verse thirty six. The Lord said to Moses, "Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to remove the censers from the charred remains." and scatter the coals some distance away. 
For the censers are holy, the censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Now, there's some really cool things that happen in those two little short um, verses, two and a half, really, uh, short verses. Number one, do you notice what God said? Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest. Like, this is God's subtle and strong affirmation of what he set in motion, Aaron, the priest. This is kind of like you walking into your children's room and going, because I said so, right? Why do I have to do this? Because I'm the boss. And God comes back and says, tell Aaron, the priest. And everybody's like, yes, he is. We're not arguing that anymore, right? So he, he subtly but firmly affirms his, his will, and he says, tell Eleazar, this is Aaron's boy, to go out and collect the charred, uh, the, the censers from the charred remains of all the guys. Now, here's the reason why they had to do this, and this is just interesting to know. It doesn't have anything really to do with our life. Because, because Aaron is the high priest, if you know your Old Testament law, you're not allowed to touch dead bodies. That was against the rules. And so if you did, if you came into contact with a dead body, then you had to stay outside of the camp for like seven days until you were purified and then come back and you'd wash and then you could kind of live back in with your family again. And so in this moment, Aaron wasn't allowed to go out and get the censers because it would have, it would have made him unclean, okay? And so instead he sends his boy, which is like ultimate grunt work. Hey, you go out there and touch all those dead bodies and then go camp out for seven days and then you can come back later. I'll tell you what happened. If, if Aaron were to do this, it would have stretched the story out and it would have just taken longer for all this to happen. But so he sent Eleazar. That's the reason why he's, he sent him. And number three, here's the neat thing. That phrase at the very end of that, the censors of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. You, you read this in the original language in the Hebrew. It reads a little, I think, cooler. These sinners against their own lives. See, when we stand in such selfish opposition to God, we are the ones who pay the price. We are standing against God. It's, we don't like to see it like that. We don't like to view our actions in the way that we live our lives as being against God. But the original language puts it like that. These sinners against their own lives. Like we've, we've pitted ourselves against him. So Eleazar goes out and he gets all these censors and he brings them back. And they do something kind of odd with them. And I, this is leading all the way up. I have one point today. If you notice on the screen there's not any points. I have one point and I'm, I'm getting it. Second half of verse 38. Hammer, this is God still talking, hammer the censers into sheets to overlay the altar. For they were presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be assigned to the Israelites. So Eleazar the priest collected all the bronze censers and brought to those brought by those who had been burned to death, and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. Now here's some interesting things in this, and I don't want you to miss. The Bible says that Eleazar collected the bronze 
censers brought by those who had been burdened to death. Now, what's so significant about bronze? Well, the Bible says, uh, and we can kind of confirm this in different places, that obviously it's stated here, and if later if you read through what the, what the altar was, the altar is covered in bronze. And, and this is, it says to overlay the altar, which means just to put another layer of protection around it with these bronze censers. Now, here's what we know. We know that Aaron and all of the priests, Aaron's descendants, when they used a censer, it was silver. They used silver censers, and then these 250 other guys showed up with bronze ones. When Aaron, as the high priest, and even now, even all the way through the Old Testament, uh, not now, but all the way through the Old Testament, when the high priest would go into the temple, you know, let's fast forward all the way even up to Jesus' time, and he would go into the Holy of Holies on the, on the um, covenant, day of the covenant. Um, and, and they would go in and he would make atonement for the entire nation of Israel. Y'all remember that? The high priest would go in once a year. They'd tie a rope around his waist in case God was mad enough to kill the high priest. They could pull him out because nobody else was allowed in there. He would carry in a gold censer that time. But these men show up with bronze ones. They... They show up with cheap ones, with fake ones, with imitation ones. And they're demanding their own positions with half value stuff. You see how self-absorbed they were? Now here's what I think is really weird. It says that... um, They were presented before the Lord and became holy. One commentary I read said this. They offered them in His presence. They burned incense in them and, most importantly, to Him. Though it was not their business, but the business of the priests, yet these being done by His orders, because God set all this up, were an open trial of who were His priests and who were not. Because of all that, they were not to be put to common use. Basically saying this, God asked them to do this. Bring your censers, burn your incense, and I'll choose who's the real priest and who's not. And because God said to do it, when He brought fire, which we can obviously draw some parallels to making things pure and and all that kind of stuff, when He brought fire and burned up the people, the, the bronze censers survived. And God said, those things, those things are holy. And so bring them up, beat them out flat, and cover the altar with it. This altar that daily sacrifices were being made on. Animals were being burned. Grain offering was being burned. All this drink offering was being poured out all on this altar. And every day, the Israelites would walk up and they would see the bronze from the censers of Korah's men and go, that's not our job. That's the job of God's chosen ones. Now this is a really incredible thing and this leads me to my big point. Okay, here's it. When we begin to make church or religion or religious activity, however you want to say it, when we begin to make that more about us 
than about Him. He will destroy every unholy part of us. And wouldn't you rather recognize that before it costs you more than you could ever imagine? When we come in with this self-entitled, self-inflated, myopic, me-focused attitude, God will burn that And he'll leave the holy parts for himself. So church is, I mean, a wild story of these men, not about leadership, but about selfishness. So here's my, my question, and we're going to be done. When it comes to feeling far from God, are you more concerned about what you want or about what he wants? When it comes to this spiritually dry season of your life, are your prayers more focused on yourself or on him? Because here's what I think we do. Now, listen, I'm not above this and I'm not, un, not, not guilty of this myself. God, I just need this. God, I need you to do this in my life. God, I need this. God, I want this. God, I, I have to have this. Focused on me. Focused on me. Instead, what if we, what if we switched that prayer? What if we switched our focus? To be God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't get why I'm having to deal with all this. But God, you're God. And I trust you. And I know that you've got a plan. And I know that your plan is bigger than what I can ever imagine. So God, I'm giving you all I've got. That prayer is more about him than it is about you. It's not wrong to pray for yourself. But it's wrong to be so focused on what you want, you miss what he's trying to do. What these guys did. They were so locked in. They were missing the bigger picture of God's appointed process. So this morning... So a simple question. Where's your focus? Are you focused on your wants, your comfort, your desire, the way you see church, the way you are comfortable with religion, the way you are comfortable with the process of those things, with your daily life, with your with your in and out comings? Are you more focused on what He wants to accomplish and somehow humbled that He would use us? Are you more focused on what He wants to do within our church, within our community, within your family, and within your own heart? God, break every unholy part of me 
and make me obedient to you. That's our prayer this morning. Listen, some of you may say, I, I, I'm not ready for that. I can't, I, I can't let go of the things that I think are so important. And I, I, I challenge you to trust Him. I can't, I can't break out of the habit and the mold of my selfishness. Then welcome to the club. That's where Jesus says, deny yourself daily. Follow. We cannot allow our inward focus to distract us from our upward purpose. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. TJ's going to come and sing. Dustin will be up front. If you need to come and just confess some things to God, listen, that's none of my business. You can do that where you sit. You can do that at the altar. You can come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you and walk you through some things. If you just need prayer and say, man, I just need you to pray for me, man. I'll pray for you. If you need to come and say, I, I, need a, I just need to surrender my life. I need to understand those three things that you talked about are the most important things. That I have sin, that God, the penalty of that sin is death, but God came so that I can have life. Those, those things are the most important things in this moment, but don't miss your moment to relinquish some focus and put it back on who deserves it the most. Hey, this is Matt Overall. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.